I have the pleasure today to have with me Dr. Matthew Chisman from the University of Derby. And uh, I don't really know whether Derby, where, where Derby is located in terms of the, the regional denomination. It's not Yorkshire or South Yorkshire anymore. So what, what's, the, what's the location exactly? So, so Derby's in the East Midlands. East Midlands. Um, and yeah, and it's uh, the main town in Derbyshire. It's, it's half an hour on the train from Sheffield and, and about an hour and a half from London. So, Matt, you are an associate professor of creative writing now. And when we last met, I was still working at the University of Sheffield. And also you had a, a teaching role, if I, rem I remember correctly, in, in Sheffield. What would be really interesting for listeners is to hear a little bit the early years of your research career. Can you tell us how it all started? Yeah, sure. Um, so I think the best way of, of telling the story, I, I did my BA um, in history uh, back in the 90s. And I don't really count that as part of who I am as a researcher. Um, I decided to do a PhD in 2005, and I chose a very marginal, small field. I had absolutely no idea about job prospects and career on life as a researcher uh, after that. So I did, I, 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 I did a PhD in folklore. And at that time, Sheffield was the, uh, the only institution in England that offered PhDs in, in folklore, that could supervise uh, PhDs in folklore. And um, uh, I started that in 2005. I ended that uh, 2010. And in fact, I, I hold the last PhD in folklore awarded by an English uh, HEI. Can you tell us what your PhD was, uh, was on? Because for many people, probably folklore is, some, is, a, is an idea that's a little bit cryptic. Can you tell us what this was about? So to explain what folklore uh, is, um, is that it, it essentially looks at cultural tradition. So it looks at how we create the future in the present by performing texts um, uh, and ideas from the past. And so I particularly looked at uh, higher education students. I looked at um, uh, students at the University of Sheffield, undergraduates, um, and, and I looked at their traditions and the things that they pass on year on year in terms of everything from sort of ambient cultural behaviours to um, uh, actual traditions, i.e. songs, chants, texts, etc. And uh, I, I wrote a history of uh, what it was like to be a student at the University of Sheffield from that looked back to the, uh, the 1920s even, um, but really focused on an ethnography um, uh, of contemporary student life as it was then. Now, in the middle of this uh, PhD, um, I decided, I mean, it, it became, as all PhDs do, it became huge, it became massive, uh, it became endless. I found it extremely politicizing. Um, so for the first time in my life, I think I understood or felt the role that politics had in guiding and organizing uh, our life. Um, it kind of overwhelmed me. Um, I, I could also see the importance of alcohol, uh, the consumption of alcohol to um, uh, students, youth, etc., and how, how, how crucial it, it was 
A, in, in expressing student identity or mainstream student identity, but also as a product that is sold to students. Let's, let's leave it at that. And so in the middle of my PhD, I took a year out and did an MSc by research in public health and then came back to my PhD and finished that. And so I've got a BA, I've got an MSc by research, um, and I've got a PhD um, uh, in folklore. And I was a very, I was on the sociological end of folklore. Some people look at texts, other people look at kind of the folk people. And I was really focused on people. Um, but since then, I graduated. And by that time, I'd secured a little bit of teaching within the School of English um, there, teaching their Erasmus students in a very marginal kind of position. And I was in that job for five or six years, all the time developing and trying out and experimenting. And um, it gave me just enough money to live on. Um, and, you know, I was applying for research grants at this point as well. I was successful uh, in a few cases. I dabbled in lots of things, I think. Um, and eventually I was appointed as a senior lecturer in uh, cultural theory at a, a very different university to uh, University of Sheffield, Southampton Solent University in Southampton, um, where I taught a variety of students, everything from um, English students to um, fashion students. Do you know what? I absolutely loved teaching fashion. Amazing uh, uh, students. And, and it was really interesting getting to grips with the uh, uh, theories behind fashion. Anyway, um, uh, and I moved on from then um, to uh, the University of Derby, where I got a lectureship in uh, creative writing, which uh, where I'm now uh, associate professor. In that time between 2010, when I graduated with my PhD, and 2015, when I first attained a tenured academic position or, or a permanent academic position, I was focusing a lot on creative work. Um, and part of that was indeed strategic. You know, I, I realized that I'm a jack of all trades. That's something that's that's really interesting and in your past and, and also it makes it really difficult to understand who you are as an academic. Because so one of the questions that I have is about, you know, because you are incredibly creative in the way that you engage in projects, you know, why stay in academia? Because you've been involved in publishing books and you've done projects with, with artists and so on. And, you know, is the academic context the, the best context to make these things happen? What, what sort of kept you in that space instead of working, I don't know, for a publisher? Or what, what's really the anchor that made you want to stay in academia at, at, you know, at the end of your PhD? Because, you know, in the years after when you were teaching and we know, you know, short term contract and teaching contract, the money is, is not great. So what's, why stay there? Yeah. Good question. I think that, well, a combination of reasons, i.e. if you're going to work as an artist outside of academia, even a writer, the money is terrible. Absolutely, probably worse than, than scraping along in universities, or, or it's very difficult um, in, in, in other ways. And you also 
have to pay a lot more attention to what the market wants. Um, there is a certain freedom uh, uh, within the university where really, although funding bids uh, are certainly attendant to, to market desires, um, academic freedom in terms of, of, of what we can do and think about is, is pretty uh, attractive, um, uh, A. Um, and B, I've got a kind of technical mindset and approach. I'm interested in the theory. I'm interested in, in uh, understanding the world. I'm interested in all sorts of academic disciplines and pursuits. I mean, because I've come through as a researcher from a number of disciplines, I, I kind of, I kind of, not I'm jealous, what's the right word? I kind of wonder what I would be like if I was coherently formed within a discipline because that's never been how I've been managed, I've managed to work really, uh, aside from those few years of the, the PhD. And so I'm, I'm, I'm an interdisciplinary uh, uh, researcher um, and thinker, um, and that has a lot of strengths to it. And that allows me to access different domains of knowledge. And it makes me very motivated to stay in universities so that I can collaborate and work Uh, with researchers. Do you think that it's been difficult in terms of creating a narrative in terms of your employment? Because often, you know, if a department is seeking, you know, a lecture to teach, you know, X, you know, the narrative that you have about what you bring with the vast range of projects that you've been working on, it can be really hard to articulate what it is that you bring. And also from a funding perspective, you know, if you're applying for a bid, you need to create a narrative about, you know, who you are as a researcher hmm. and the fact that you've worked on such, you know, such diverse range of projects can confuse the funders as well. You know what I'm like, and I'm, I'm somebody who is very keen in, in supporting interdisciplinary work, but at the same time, hmm. I have seen, you know, early career academic really struggle in constructing, you know, the research niche that they need to portray and or, or I found difficult to actually identify what the research niche ought to be. And in a way, they, with you, there is a sense of freedom of saying, well, don't care about the research niche. I'll just work on whatever I, I want to. Well, um, that's, that's kind of you to say. There is a slight privilege in that as well. And I do carry, I think, a slight privilege of being able uh, to do that. But, but to, to, to answer your question there, um, I, re I mean, I remember... 20, you know, when, when, after I'd graduated and was uh, kind of uh, doing temporary work at University of Sheffield, I remember senior academics giving me advice, giving me advice saying, you know, to, to, to get a position, you absolutely need to form a very coherent identity. And I just look at what you do and I don't see that uh, at all. And I've heard that quite a few times, um, especially I think in, of course, Russell Group institutions, more senior institutions where the disciplines are absolutely uh, 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 better supported, I think. Um, I certainly found as I moved to newer universities that that was not always such a concern. It certainly wasn't such a concern at Southampton Solent. University. Um, 
they were looking to my uh, experience by then of from, from having taught at university level and from doing all the projects that I, I, had, I had done. Um, however, I did also begin to frame myself as a creative worker. Now, if you think about it, a creative uh, writer, being an artist, you can draw on all disciplines. And yes, there is a uh, disciplinary knowledge within creative writing, uh, just as, as there are within all the creative arts. Um, but it is, it is also acceptable, I think, uh, within the academy to um, frame yourself as that, or, or it certainly was in the last decade. And that helped me uh, a lot. And I'm finding now, as I've been doing this and been involved in a, a, a range of projects for so long, that it's now not that hard to develop a coherent narrative because I can pick and choose from what I've done depending on what I'm kind of focusing on or applying for. And so it, uh, 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 there are a few narratives within my work. There's the folklore, um, there's an attention to higher education, uh, there's an interest in popular culture, uh, uh, popular music, there's an interest in uh, capitalism and neoliberalism. So, you know, those, those narratives are, are, are develop as I go on and I can focus on them so, uh, through that. But, 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 but the, to return to the point about privilege, um, I mean, I did this mostly in my 30s, i.e. is the, the, the difficult period where uh, I was just stubborn and, and, and dealt with not earning anything and doing whatever projects could come about and etc. And I did that at the expense of my mental health to some extent during that period. But, but also I was, I didn't, uh, you know, I, if I was, if, if I'd have been a woman, um, I would have given up my fertility in that period. And I was working all hours doing this, saying yes all the time, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, just pushing through really on stubbornness. Um, not, that's strategic, just stubborn. All right. So there's not a, a um, uh, uh, there's not a grand narrative to me. I'm not coming from this point of disciplinary push, knowledge, etc. I'm, I'm going to remain voracious and interested in lots of different things. So is there a different way? Is there a different way to go about it for those who are less privileged? Good question. And. I often think if I was a woman, then I would have made different decisions during those years. I would have done. That's not to say, or, or, or the sacrifices would have been different. You know, maybe the sacrifices would have been different. And certainly it's, these kind of reflections have been definitely orientating uh, the research bids that I'm working on now uh, in an attempt to support Uh, greater diversity within folklore specifically. Mm. What you know in the in the work that you do within you know within your role as a as a, as a teacher as an academic, how do you want to contribute to the research space to the you know academic space? What's really your purpose? Because of the great diversity of interest that you have, you know at at the crux of how you want to contribute. What what is it? That's a good question. Um, I mean, at the crux of it, I think I'm essentially reasonably selfish. And, uh, well, okay, I will try and answer it by thinking about myself in comparison with other colleagues. I know I'm not that interested in teaching. 
I like, I mean, I, I, I enjoy teaching. I like teaching. I really enjoy working out disciplinary stuff about creative writing in relationship to teaching, etc. But I mean, my drive is definitely towards research. Um, and it's definitely working with PhD students to some extent, but, but, but mostly uh, to research. Realizing myself is really important to me uh, via my uh, uh, academic labor. What does it mean to you uh, realizing yourself? How do you uh, articulate that? So testing myself, learning more, creating artistic and theoretical and um, uh, provocative um, and sometimes entertaining, impactful work um, uh, is something that I suppose at base I enjoy and also politically I, I make sure the politics of what I do is 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 consistent with my own politics, I suppose. But I still can't boil down uh, my mission to uh, uh, this thing or that thing or, or whatever. I'm not strategic in that way. I mean, I wish I was more strategic. Uh, uh, I, 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 I tend to do what is thrown in front of me. That's an interesting thing because, I mean, one of the questions that I had for you was what is your approach in, in choosing to work on a specific project or with somebody, you know, people come to you, you meet people, you know, what is your approach if, you're, if you think that you're not strategic in saying, okay, I really fancy doing this project or I really want to work with that specific person? Well, I would say that whatever it was, whatever collaboration it was, so, so if you and I went to say, okay, let's think and work about this, wherever we went with it, that we would find something very interesting and, and something very alive. And, and I think that um, I almost think you don't have to be strategic <laughs> sometimes because, who, uh, 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 you know, this is something I learned from you, uh, Sandrine, as well, in the, uh, the Crucible program that you ran, um, what, in 2011, 12, 13, I can't remember when it was, um, whereby conversations were initiated amongst researchers from different disciplines And it almost you get somewhere without deciding on, you know, deciding about where you're going to go first, non-output led. And I think that's a very creative way of working and, and also a very satisfying way of working. And, you know, for that reason, I mean, just outside of from the, that, that, that crucible program, I worked on uh, comics and uh, cancer. And so this project that we did on, um, well, it was, it was about, leukemia patients and um, after they'd had cancer, after they'd had uh, radiation therapy, their sex lives were very unsatisfactory. And so how do we improve the, the ways that they can approach and deal with um, uh, their, their sexuality? Um, we interviewed them and then we commissioned artists to make uh, comics uh, about, about their, their sex lives. And that got me involved in the whole community of graphic medicine. And essentially, these are these are medical professionals who really love comics. Um, I mean, I'm not a comics scholar or a comics person. I, I, I read comics. I like comics. Um, uh, I'm involved in them. Um, 
but I've I've really enjoyed since then having a minor a minor interest in in in, in this and contributing to conferences and making friends and allies within within that that field. Now, none of it is at all. Oh, I want to move into graphic medicine or whatever. But I found that I've learned stuff about research impact from there. I've learned stuff about um, I've learned stuff about medicine and healthcare, and I've learned stuff about subjectivity and how to position yourself as a researcher. I've learned stuff about um, how to communicate various different things. So, I think if you just let yourself go and be open to wherever you are taken, um, uh, then um, uh, the journey can be more rewarding and fulfilling than if you are uh, uh, controlled and strategic about it. Um, It's only recently, really, that I have really begun to build a program of, yes, I'd like to do this, and then that, and then this. Um, and that's only as a result of uh, my current job and trying to um, develop myself uh, as a as a researcher at the university. Um, but it is at the same time, it's I've learned how to do that from being open to uh, lots of different research projects. I must admit this this project that you're referring to is one I always use it as an example when I run workshops on you know public engagement or collaboration because I've I've always found it really really fascinating. One of the things I'll be interested to to hear about is about what you found the most challenging in building your academic career. I mean, you know, you you've referred to initial teaching contracts where you don't earn very much and so on. But also, could you describe some situation where you've had to make really difficult decisions in terms of your career or the choices that you've had to make or, you know, or sort of um, departmental context where things may have been difficult? So what's the most difficult? I mean, also materially, it was um, uh, only being employed for nine months a year on a temporary position, part-time temporary position signing on in the summer um, and then you've got the the dissonance you know for I, I can remember going to a conference at I think my I got my fee waived because I had no money um, and it was a conference at big hotel outside of Newport oh I know it's the oh, Society man. for Research into Higher Education I was there I remember <laughs> seeing you there <laughs> SRHE conference there um, and so one of the times I went there, I'm not, I'm not sure which time it was, I was signing on because it was in the summer um, and I had to sign on on the Friday and in Sheffield. And if I didn't sign on, I'd lose my benefits. But you can get a special dispensation to sign on, on another, in another job centre. So I remember getting the bus to the job centre in Newport to sign on and then you know, I'm running a research network into student experience in the hotel, this luxury hotel, which I wasn't staying at. I was staying at another cheaper place. Um, and you have to like deal with the dissonances, I suppose, um, which, you know, if I wasn't carrying privilege, would, would I imagine, I imagine be a lot harder to do. Uh, and, and, you know, and I definitely suffered mental health um, 
uh, stuff all around those kind of those you know where where everything is saying that that that, that your work and um, uh, your approach and your ideas are not worth it. They're not worth paying for. You know you're, you 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 know. So all you have is your stubbornness uh, to do it. Um, but that stubbornness does res- does absolutely. Uh, in my case, ride on a, 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 a lot of privilege, which I've accrued, I think, or which I have anyway. Um, so there's that. That was materially a, a good example of the places that, that I got to in, 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 in those years. Um, and then difficult decisions. I mean, I find like working in uh, or difficult places, I find working in higher education highly emotional. Um I think it's something about the neoliberal university whereby I, I haven't quite worked this out yet, but there is this relationship to the self and the subject where it just wants you to give, 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 strive, 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 where you've really got to cut. You're really the conscience of the whole system. The whole system doesn't give, you know, doesn't care about, um, uh, uh, anything it's it's it, it only cares about building and growing these universities growing 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 and so to care about your discipline or the disciplines you work within to care about um your students to care about uh your career and the other careers about you that whole thing you've got to carry all of that yourself you've got to give it all of yourself and so i find working in universities highly kind of uh full of affect full of emotion um and you know often i come up i get so involved in projects and you you come up against spaces of dissonance and spaces of um uh uh where your will and others will and conflict and it can make things hard and difficult so how do you build resilience within that space to actually you know you're talking about mental health issues and there are so many reports about it in the academic context and you know we keep talking about it but what are we actually really doing about it and you know you can't wait you know you can't wait for your institution to change you know its work allocation model you know to make you well or to make you survive in that competitive environment so at an individual level how have you addressed it to be able you know to to stay sane <laughs> yeah um uh so what definitely works for me um uh and it helps me know myself as well and know and know the pressures that i'm under but what definitely works for me is to prioritize the one thing that i want to do or i need to do so i write every day and i do that the first as soon as i get up so it's done so i get up at you know early and i will write for after i've had a coffee i will write for half an hour or an hour. Um, and I'm a very, my, my, my nature is very kind of like tick boxy, right? So I do the writing every day. Um, almost doesn't matter what I do, but that is always for me in some way. And it's also a space where uh, I can reflect and I can kind of keep a hold of myself within all of these forces that we have to work in every day. Um, and I have, I've also noticed that, um, you know, this it sounds stupid to say, but I've you know, even keeping healthy, eating well, exercising, and I'm rubbish at eating well and exercising, but I've learned to be better at it. That's helped a bit. 
Um, and in terms of in terms of actual when the work gets going, I'm not sure if I am that good at dealing with it. I'm a finisher. I'm a, I'm, I have to finish everything. And so, and so I often work, I mean, I, you know, I work over hours. Um, and again, that rides on those who shouldn't, and you shouldn't overwork. Um, and only recently, I mean, uh, uh, I had, uh, we had our first child just a matter of months ago. Only recently am I coming up against an immovable force that is stronger than my own desire to tick boxes. Um, uh, and that's that, that, that little girl. And I look at her and I think, why do I have to do all of this? In a way, what, what the interesting point for me here is that between, you know, you, you're very driven in terms of, you know, wanting to produce knowledge, wanting to, you know, wanting to write. And, 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 and in a way, I think when we talk about, you know, the research culture and challenging the research culture, there is this dichotomy between the inner desire of pushing yourself towards, you know, new knowledge and at the same time, the expectation of, of, of institution. And, you know, and it's like, what comes first, you know, is it we are putting that on upon ourselves, or is it because there is no other way to kind of have an academic career? And how can you exist in academia when you want to push, you know, knowledge, when you want to be successful, but at the same time, when you want to have a balanced life? Because, you know, if we are really serious about challenging, you know, the research environment in terms of creating an environment that diverse individual can thrive and, and, and be successful, what needs to change in terms of this culture that is, you know, push, 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 and no space for the, the person that is not the academic? It's strange, isn't it? And I think that, you know, that choice that researchers, uh, that, that academics make to, do you want to develop into management? Do you want to develop into research, et cetera? And, you know, those that develop into management obviously lead this push, push culture. They're in that. I mean, that's what they do. It's their, 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 their kind of uh, 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 imperatives. Um, and so to an extent, there needs to be some structural change from, from, from in terms of, of, of the management. But what can a researcher do? Um, a researcher needs, needs to build in work-life balance and, and diversity and mental health um, elements into their research bids now. It's the only thing they have any control of in terms of how their working life is dictated. So how does this look like in practice? In practice, in terms of impact, in terms of um, how uh, research funding is managed, um, then these these commitments to uh, mental health to to, to working life they, they, they must be in there in the bits. Uh, 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 it sounds like it's such a weak answer, but it's one thing that uh, uh, researchers do have control over. You know, and all the other strategies that have always been there, the cynicism, cynicism towards uh, the institution is interesting. I mean, I still. I still run a kind of, I never criticize myself, I never really establish a narrative in which I could be criticized um, at work. Everything's excellent, etc. It's not true in some of my research outputs, 
obviously you, you fail and by failing that you, you learn more. But in terms of my work within the institution, and I wonder whether that has to break. I've been thinking recently that whether that would actually politically be much, would be more important if I did step down from the overwork and, and began criticising myself for doing that. But then again, you know, I'm at that position in my career when I can do that. I, I can rely on a, a salary, uh, et cetera. What irritates me, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, is that it's just the amount of bureaucracy elsewhere within the university. It's all the box. You know, I have to, to, to work for 40 hours before I get to the, the bits of the job that drive me. And that those bits of the job that drive me, I reach every week, but I do it by overworking. And that's wholly how the system is set up to, 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 to squeeze the most value from researchers. Do you think that there is a difference between different institutions? I mean, having worked, you know, in research group institution and now yeah. working in another type of institution, is it exactly the same or is there a difference between, between them? There's so much difference. Yeah, there's, there's so much difference between um, uh, the institutions I've worked at. All of them have their, their, their pluses and their, their minuses, uh, I think. Certainly, I should say, working at Rus Russell Group University, there's a lot more breadth within the academic staff. There's a lot more, um, uh, there's a lot more academic staff. Um, there's a lot more um, uh, support for research. There's a lot more stuff going on, but there's also a lot more pressure to get those funding bids, to do all of this kind of stuff. Um, to be that kind of uh, uh, researcher, it, it's uh, working at University of Derby. There's there's less support staff um, uh, there to support bids, etc. Or there's less of an um, internal machinery. What support staff have we have there is am are amazing and brilliant, but but there's just there's just less breadth in terms of that 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 stuff. But there's a lot more praise and um, encouragement uh, and support there. There's a lot more positive energy, I would say, compared to kind of negative energy at, at some Russell Group universities. I don't really know why that would be so, but I would say that was a difference. So how do you see your role now that you are, you know, an associate professor and uh, maybe at some point a professor in terms of the way that you think you can shape the research culture within your own context because obviously you, you know you you now working with phd student you're teaching you know you will your 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 writing you know bids where you know maybe some postdoctoral researchers will be working with you and you may employ you know research associate or whatever now you are a, a pillar within the institution and you have you know Maybe you don't feel like it, but a, a certain power in the way things are created within your own space. So what kind of a research leader are you aiming to become, you know, over the next few years within the institution where you are or will go to, you know, in the future? Well, well I can, yeah, I can answer that one pretty easily or quickly in that I know that what I am good at or one of my strengths is, is, is bureaucracy, is administration is kicking off things getting getting the, the you know ticking boxes uh, as i said so i i really would like to bring together bids to bring together people to bring together collaborations and um to kind of 
used my experience in doing that in the past to make sure that, that A, things happen uh, and, 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 and uh, interesting and uh, politically relevant um, and uh, disciplinary relevant and important things happen. B, that the people doing those things are uh, uh, diverse, uh, open and uh, supporting academics at various levels of their careers. I would like to do just that, really. I know that I am not going to be a research leader in this field that the university thinks that we should really push. That's not going to be at all what I'm interested in. Um, even though universities have, I've noticed, making it more and more attractive to say, oh, why don't you do this great bid and this great area? You can have nine PhD students and we'll support you in all of this kind of stuff. And um you know, if I can align it to my priorities, then yes. But I don't really like how some institutions are aligning their or branding their research through their. So, so in terms of that, I think I'm going to try and fight that. Um, uh, but in terms of putting things together, um, and in terms of of um, uh, being an, administ an administrator leader <laughs> uh, in that way, um, yeah, I think I could do that. Where, where do you think that your quirkiness in research comes from? When I think of you, there is a sign, and maybe that's not something that you feel, but to me, it feels like you're, you have a sense of freedom that, you know, is not seen in, you know, so many people. Or maybe because I don't know enough, you know, academics within your, you know, your your field, but uh, I, I really see you as somebody that has an immense sense of freedom, and and a quirkiness that is like, where is this? Where where? How did you build this? <laughs> where is this coming from? So so I think there's there's two answers to that. Um, uh, firstly, I, I think I am good at being myself in some way, and they do represent someone who who has i've got a wide range of interests and i like going deep on those interests etc so so some of that is me and i recognize that as a person that i have been since growing up um the other thing though is that when i became a researcher i think in that 2010 to once i'd done my phd and was sort of scrabbling around 2010 to 2015 this was as the impact agenda was being formed, really, and tested and just establishing itself. And there was also in that period, and there still is to some extent, and this is as a result of neoliberalization of HE, there was this, this, this great kind of like um, uh, uh, desire to put things together and see what happens, right? Assemble. Let's just assemble different things and let's see what we can generate from that energy. Um, and I think the, the Crucible program shared that energy. And that energy is to do also with the ambition of discovering new knowledge, but it's also from the ambition of capitalism, capitalism in general to experiment, try new things, etc. And at that period in my career, I had very little direction or knowing what, you know, how to go forward. And so before impact, I think especially impact, before that, it became very clear how impact was going to be awarded, uh, rewarded from the research councils. There was 
you know, oh, so do you want to do this? Do you want to put on a, an exhibition of this? Or um, uh, do you want to work with this artist? Or, hey, I want to do this. You know, whatever. It, 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 you know, you can have 500 quid to do this or people would be interested. And and I think my uh, kind of the quirkiness from who I am really met a really quirky environment at that point. And so I think that's why that um, uh, there is that diversity. Do you think that we've we've uh, we've moved away from that? Yeah. Well, I definitely have spoken to impact managers uh, at universities and they've definitely told me, oh, there's projects that you did in 2012, which we would never fund now. So I think materially, yeah, we have. And it's because um, it was because universities were adjusting to a new paradigm. And that is the the, the impact um, uh, bit of the ref. But I mean, that's, that's always the case, isn't it? I mean, there's constant change in this in this field, in, in HE, there's constant change. And so there will always be places where, where that kind of uh, experimentation is possible. How do you think that you've built your confidence, you know, over the years? One of the things that you say is that your stubbornness of you really wanting to think in depth about things and wanting to understand and, you know, People develop the confidence in lots of different ways. For some people, it's just seeing their work published is just, okay, that's the confirmation that what I'm thinking, you know, is, is value for others. But, but in your case, what's, uh, you know, the inner belief that what I'm doing has got value in my own eyes? Well, I think all of that is also to do with uh, how you obviously uh, are as a child brought up, for me anyway, comes from... I mean, my confidence comes from a privileged background in lots of ways. I've, I've never really had any challenges to uh, my core and my identity. And so I've, my, and I, I've, I've always learned how to, to make my curiosity interesting to others. I've been allowed to do that. Uh, I haven't had to justify myself in any other way or whatever so there is those long-standing things um and then in terms of times when i've been troubled by it then there's also um uh all of those things that we do to manage our sense of well-being be that you know prozac or uh uh socializing or keeping fit or whatever And I think that the lesson, though, is that, um, or, or, or the, the one thing that I could give or demonstrate, is that to, it's, it's, it's to persist, to not give up, and to keep, to keep going even in the same place, um, uh, intellectually, uh, bears fruit, and to trust in doing that. In some ways, you know, the, the, the privileged background and, and for some it will come from the family and for others it may be just the university where they went for the undergrad kind of creates sort of the, some of the building block of trusting your thinking, trusting yourself in the way that you, you know, you're trying to navigate your career. But for, for those people who do not have that sort of privileged background or, you know, come from, you know, a different sort of racial background where, you know, privilege 
is not given or is not, you know, just there. What kind of environments are you constructing yourself for others that, that enables that confidence to be built? So I think the most important thing in, in, in doing that is to make sure that as uh, you develop your research career is that everything that you do should be built with an attention to those to, to uh, diversity and building those um, uh, researchers. But I don't know the answer to that. And uh, the answer is to ask the researchers. The answer is not to say, oh, well, here I am, this super confident um, uh, researcher. I think you should do this and you'll be more confident like me. That's not at all what anyone needs to hear. There only, no one needs to hear at all saying, I think it's this or that, or, you know, uh, 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 I, I, was, I was lucky to have a stable family background and, 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 and did, you know, school didn't knock me at all and I went to a great university, et cetera. They don't need me saying at all anything. People only need to be asked themselves and to be valued uh, the, in themselves about uh, 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 their own strengths. And to be honest, if you if you if you're at university and you're researching and you've come and you've you, you've come through various challenges as a result of your identity, then you've probably got a lot more capability and ability than someone who hasn't been challenged like me in that way. And so I think the answer to all of those questions you're asked in terms of advice is to make sure that people like me don't tell you how to be more confident. Mm. That was, that's what I would say. How do we support research leaders like you to learn to become better listener and to learn to create the environment for others where you know, yeah, where you're not going to say, oh, you should be doing it this way. Because, I mean, one of the, mm -hmm. you know, one of the things that I've always felt frustrated is that, you know, people get training on all sorts of stuff, but the space given to reflecting on the way that we interact with each other in the research environment is not something that's, you know, that's really given space. And, and I guess, you know, you were referring to the Crucible program that I ran. And for me, it was the intention was, yeah, to get people to consider interdisciplinary collaboration, but was also about giving people the space and the time to reflect on their career, mm. on their interaction, on their desire in the research space. But reflection isn't embedded in the practices. You know, maybe it is for people who are, you know, in you know in social science, but reflecting on how you're interacting, it just doesn't exist doesn't exist doesn't doesn't exist and and similarly i think it's connected to reading i mean i speak to friends who don't work in he and i tell them that i literally have no time to read anything reading is not part of my job i mean it is probably if you look in my work plan it may be in there but uh, that evaporated a long time ago and they just can't believe it that academics do not read um It's rare. I think you've got to take a holiday to read. And I think that is connected to reflection. It is connected to overproduction and, and, and manic spaces and growth and, and all of these things. Of course it is. Um, it seems almost revolutionary to read 
at the moment. It's the greatest thing about doing a PhD is you you allowed you got time to read in such, to some extent. And reading, of course, is a form of reflection, where we're we're, we're reading the words of another, um, uh, and, and and thinking on those ideas. So how do we create those spaces? It's all about doing less, isn't it? It's all about doing less, and from doing less. Um, uh, encouraging a growth which is authentic rather than forced. And it's frustrating as well because all of the things you're saying, like how do we encourage our institutions to encourage these spaces, etc., they're already saying it. They're already saying, oh, you know, let's focus on well-being, let's reflect on this. All of that kind of stuff is stuff that you hear every day in every institution in the UK. It's the same way that most Hollywood films are anti-capitalist. Every Hollywood film goes on about how bad big business is. Every Hollywood, it's the message of each Hollywood film. And we've got to save the environment and um, uh, business is terrible. At the same way, every Hollywood studio is a huge capitalist organisation, you know, and it's the same with universities. It's the narratives that, or, or the ideas that you're talking about are also there within our institutions and they're there and good people are doing good things and trying to change working cultures. But at the same time, the way that these super complex institutions work is that change is co-opted and A, co-opted and B is, is just face value. And so, Sandrine, my question for you, if I may, is it's very hard once you sort of like get into puzzling through this it's, it's very hard to, to not just end up at policy. Oh, the policy has to change. We have to, we have to take a step back from the Brown report, or we have to, to elect different leaders that will change the HE system. Now, that, I think that is a trap, thinking that it's all policy-led and that it's also more complex in various different ways. So my question for you is, are there ways in which we can change without changing policy. It's interesting you asking that because I guess for me, you know, leaving the institution where I had been working for 20 years was because I had a sense of frustration of the police, the policy sitting there and doing nothing. And the work that I do now in working as a coach with academics, it's about saying, well, let's change the environment one conversation at a time. You know, I, I've done a project, you know, with with a PhD supervisor, just getting some interviews with their PhD students and postdocs, asking them, you know, what is it like working with your PI, with your PhD supervisor, and using that as a way of ref helping the PI reflect on his approach, his or her approach to working with others. It's very slow work, but it's really deep work of, you know, one conversation at a time, you know, listening to one person at a time instead of these grand policy documents. Because, I've, I, you know, I was involved in some of the Athena Swan application and so on, and, you know, lots of good things on paper. And then, you know, you feel, oh, you know, nothing happens. And and the the, the this discrepancy between the good intention of the policy document and actually the reality of making things happen. And so for me, it's about, yeah, say, okay, I don't give a damn now anymore about the policies. What I want is to help individuals in the research environment, you know, one conversation at a time. You know, mm -hmm. so it's, you know, it's, it seems, you know, very, I, I don't know, maybe it's, you know, 
very small in its scope, but that's the way personally I'm, I'm trying to go about it. Yeah, and it's not small in its scope in that you're also mediating it and putting out uh, uh, interviews and putting out um, uh, ideas. Ideas are never small in their scope, are they? Mm, no. So I'm going, uh, we're going to finish this conversation because I've taken a lot of your time this, uh, this morning. So the last thing I'd like to ask you is, you know, if you were reflecting to, you know, when you're starting your PhD, what would you tell your young self now that you are full of wisdom in terms of easing the path and making it easier on, on yourself to, to travel through this journey? I would say that there are certain things that I could have done earlier that would have made my life easier in, uh, for example, I would have said, build an audience more in terms of social media, in terms of uh, social media specifically, I would have focused a bit more on that because I think that just makes your life easier in terms of uh, communicating your work. Um, that's quite a dull answer. Um, what else I would, I, I don't know whether I would say, keep going. I might say, you know, get out now. <laughs> and, you know, you were saying, well, why not, you know, why not work as a creative artist, uh, within the market? That's one of your suggestions. That would have been an interesting avenue to explore. I'm way too embedded within uh, HG now, but then I'd have lost so much of what I've learned. And so it would have been a very different thing. Um, or I would have been a very different thing. Um, you know, a lot of the stupid choices, not stupid, a lot of the non-career choices I've made have ended up making me or making me understand more. And, um, I would be loath to tell that person to make this career choice and then this career choice and then this career choice and you'd have a more secure life earlier. I wouldn't give them that advice. I would just, you know, continue. Keep the, free keep the freedom. Yeah, but I, you've got to play the hand that you, you are dealt. And so if I had been dealt another hand, if I was someone different, then um, I wouldn't have made the choices that I've made. I, I think. Thank you, Matt. It's been really a pleasure discussing with you. And um, I hope that you can enjoy the company of your lovely little girls uh, in Cozy. It's, uh, it's a really, really precious time. I hope that you know that you can leave, you know, the reading and the writing a little bit on the side. And uh, before we started the recording, I said one of the best memories that I have when my kids were little is just to just to hold my baby and sit on the sofa and just just be there. So I hope that you can give yourself you can give yourself permission to you know leave a little bit the academic work and uh, and then just do that you know sit with the baby and uh, and enjoy the moment. I'm going to take that as an order. I'm going to go and do that. <laughs> Right. Um, so, and thank you very much for creating this space for reflection. Thank you. Which I found very engaging. So, yeah, thanks. Thank you. Thank you.